to ask you to please open with me to our text for this morning, which is Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. And if you're using the Bibles in the pews, that's on page number 858. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. And this is what Luke writes to Christian disciples back then, as well as to us as Christian disciples today. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down to the ground with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember what he said to you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and then be raised from the dead. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending down, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And, when, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I think most of you know this, but before I came to serve as senior pastor here at Ivanrest Church, I spent seven years working as a youth pastor. Uh, technically, my title was associate pastor with a youth ministry emphasis, but because that doesn't really roll off the tongue, we'll go with youth pastor instead. Okay? And I loved youth ministry. Uh, I still do. Rest assured, I like my job now, uh, too. But there's just something about youth ministry that nothing else quite compares to. In fact, when we hired uh, Nate, our director of student ministries here, um, I was doing some onboarding and training for him, and one of the things that we were talking about was how we try to do a good job of delegating our work in the office here at our church. And so I was talking about that, and I said something to the effect of, look, I try not to step on toes. I don't want anyone else's job here. I don't want to do anyone else's work. And I kind of paused, thought about it for a moment, and then said, except maybe yours. I, I do still kind of want your job. Um, I loved youth ministry. I loved the retreats, uh, the lock-ins, the crazy events. I loved getting to know middle schoolers, high schoolers, and college-age kids. I loved the endless amounts of pizza, Doritos, Mountain Dew, and Sour Patch Kids that we survived on. Um, most of all, though, I loved those special moments when you could just tell that a kid got it, okay? Whether it was a Sunday night uh, meeting or a small group, uh, some uh, like lock-in or retreat that we did or some other in- event, there were just those moments when you could, you could see the coin drop and the Holy Spirit move and the gospel come alive for a kid. I lived for moments like those. I still do. Truth be told, pretty much the only part I didn't like about youth ministry were the games. Uh, Not playing them, mind you. I loved playing youth ministry games. I was definitely that youth pastor who was competitive enough that he was willing to sacrifice anything, including the well-being of the children I was supposed to be serving, (laughs) in order to win. No, it was planning the games that I didn't like. 
And that's because in seven years of doing youth ministry, I'm not sure that I ever had a game turn out the way that I thought it would. Okay? Now, part of that is because I'm not naturally a very gifted administrator. Okay? Planning and details are not exactly my forte. That's why you should all be glad that we have Sherry Ilbrink on staff here. Okay? I would regularly plan youth ministry games and think, this will work great, and then neglect to think of all the ways that it wouldn't. The other part of why my, na- why my games never worked, though, is because kids cheat. Okay? <laughs> I love teenagers, but it felt like every time I would explain a game, they would find every possible loophole, exemption, way to sort of twist or bend the rules in their favor so that they could come out on top. And those of you teenagers here this morning know exactly what I'm talking about. And I did the same thing when I was your age, too. And so for seven years, I would plan games, and I would think, this is going to be awesome. This is going to work great. This is going to go so well. And then we'd start playing whatever game it was, and I'd be standing there watching it and going, this isn't how this is supposed to work. Truth be told, that's how most first century Jews would have responded to the news of Jesus' resurrection, too. That's not how this is supposed to go. They wouldn't have believed it. They would have had a hard time understanding it. It would have been difficult for them to wrap their minds around the idea that somebody had just risen from the dead. Now, they wouldn't have had a hard time believing that for the reasons that we might today. Okay? Uh, as postmodern Western people who live downstream from the rationalistic developments of the Enlightenment, we disbelieve Jesus' resurrection today along logical, scientific lines of reasoning. After all, it's a well-known fact, right, that dead people don't come back to life. Centuries, millennia in fact, of observation, reflection, and even medical progress have yet to teach us otherwise. And so it's very easy for us as as postmodern enlightenment people today to dismiss the events of that first Easter as a logical impossibility. After all, Jesus didn't rise from the dead because dead people don't rise from the dead. Resurrection doesn't happen. It's not possible. But first century Jews would have had a hard time believing Jesus' resurrection for another reason. You see, while some religious Jewish groups uh, didn't believe in a resurrection, most notably the Sadducees, most others did, including the Pharisees. And so for them, they wouldn't have struggled with the idea of Jesus' resurrection because they didn't think resurrection happened. Instead, they would have struggled with the idea of Jesus' resurrection because they didn't think that it happened like this. You see, in the first century, um, the Jewish understanding of the resurrection was the idea that a resurrection would take place at the end of time. Uh, Put simply, whenever God decided to bring about the end times, close the book on this world, and bring the curtain down on his creation, one piece of what would happen them, one part of the end times, one part of that puzzle, would be a resurrection for all the righteous people. As N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary on this passage, resurrection in that world was what God would do in the end for all the righteous dead, giving new embodiment to everyone from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down to the most recent righteous martyrs. The resurrection itself would be a large-scale event. After Israel's great and final suffering, all God's people would be given new life, new bodies. So it's not that first century Jewish people didn't believe in a resurrection the way some people don't today. It's just that they didn't believe in the resurrection of only one person on one day in the middle of history. Okay? That's why they would have responded to this claim that Jesus had risen from the dead here and said, that's not the way this is supposed to go. 
In fact, as Wright points out, even Jesus' own disciples are surprised by this idea. Commenting on verses nine through 11 here, Wright says, we shouldn't be surprised at how surprised the disciples were on the first Easter morning. It wasn't just a lack of faith that stopped them understanding what Jesus had said in Galilee about his rising again. It was simply that nobody had ever dreamed that one single living person would be killed stone dead and then raised to a new sort of bodily life the other side of the grave while the rest of the world carried on as before. In other words, entirely apart from any other aspect or detail of it, the fact that Jesus' resurrection was a single, individual, personal resurrection just for him would have made it surprising and difficult for most first century Jews to believe. It was certainly surprising for the women who first learned of it in this text. You see, Luke opens this passage by saying, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women, whom we later learn included Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and a few others, took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, this is kind of a blink and you might miss it sort of detail here, right? But as N.T. Wright points out, the women obviously weren't expecting Jesus' resurrection. They weren't going to the tomb saying to themselves, well, we've got the spices in case he's still dead. Uh, but let's hope he's alive again. No, as Wright points out, these women here fully expected Jesus to still be dead. That's why you bring spices to a tomb, right? Because you expect to use them. They were expecting to have to wash Jesus' body, clean it, prepare it, spice it, and embalm it for a more permanent burial. That's why they were going to the tomb that first Easter Sunday morning. Not because they were expecting resurrection, but because they weren't. And that would be true for any of us, right? After all, that's why you go to a tomb. That's what you expect to find there. You expect to find death, decay, and a body. And so imagine these women surprised when they didn't. In verses two through eight here, Luke writes, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? And they remembered his words. And he writes, sums up those verses well, I think, when he writes, the opening mood of Easter morning then is one of surprise, astonishment, fear, and confusion. It certainly was for the women who first experienced it. It was that way for everyone else though too. Because once the women started to share this news that Jesus had risen from the dead with Jesus' followers, they were met not with the sort of you know, thanksgiving, praise, excitement, and deep trusting faith that we might expect, but instead they were met with the same sort of surprise, astonishment, confusion, and fear that they themselves had experienced at the tomb. As Luke writes in verses nine through 11, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. First, and some of you have probably heard this before, but part of why the women's words would have seemed like nonsense to the apostles is precisely because they were women. 
You see, in first century Jewish culture, like a lot of cultures back then, women were seen as second-class citizens, lesser than and subordinate to men, and even to some degree as subhuman. And so what that meant, among other things, was that women were prohibited from certain privileges in first century Jewish society. For instance, they couldn't decide who they were going to marry. Their father decided that. They couldn't decide where they were going to live or what their family life would look like because their husband decided that. And if he died, they couldn't decide what they were going to do uh, for work or how they would support themselves because, again, their father would decide that, or if he died, their brothers would decide that. In addition, women were also barred from inheriting property, going too far into the temple, or even providing testimony in court. And that last one, about not being able to provide testimony in court, I think, for our purposes this morning, is kind of interesting. You see, as stipulated by Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, Jewish law required at least two witnesses to establish someone's guilt in a court case. But women were considered ineligible as witnesses. Their testimony was not considered valid. It was not admissible before a judge. In other words, if someone committed a crime and two men witnessed it, they would likely be convicted. If someone committed a crime and just one man and a woman witnessed it, they would likely be acquitted. And if someone committed a crime and only two women witnessed it, then it was like it never happened. And so that's probably part of the reason Luke writes that the women's words here seem like nonsense to the apostles, because they were invalid witnesses. Their testimony didn't count. It wasn't acceptable. What they'd seen and heard wasn't admissible as evidence of whether or not Jesus' resurrection was really true. Just as a side note, by the way, but I actually think that this is one of the most powerful arguments for the credibility of Scripture. Sometimes uh, people who, who uh, think Scripture is kind of made up, they'll make this case, right? Well, they'll, they'll say something like, well, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is clearly something that his followers would have wanted uh, to have happen. So what's to say, they argue, that the disciples didn't simply make it up? After all, it would have served their purposes, right? It would have served their purposes in gaining a following and helped them gather and build a church, helped them gather and build power. It seems pretty self-serving to tell this story, right? Well, if that's the case, that Jesus' followers simply made up the story of his resurrection, then the fact is they did a really bad job of it, okay? That's because right from the start, they would have designed this story in such a way that almost no one would have believed it. The fact that women were the first witnesses to the resurrection makes it incredibly less likely, not more, that anyone in the first century would believe this story. And so I think that's a pretty strong apologetic argument for the validity and credibility of Scripture. Because the Bible doesn't try to downplay or hide the parts of the story that make it harder to believe. To the contrary, it actually embraces them. Why? Because it's true. So that's one reason why the apostles probably struggled to believe the women. They struggled to believe them simply because they were women. But the other reason they would have struggled to believe, as we've talked about already, is because this simply wasn't how resurrection was supposed to work. It wasn't supposed to happen for just one person on one random day in the middle of history. It wasn't supposed to be like that. It wasn't supposed to happen like that. It wasn't supposed to be that way. You see, Easter always comes as a surprise. It's a surprise of joy. It's a surprise of grace. It's a surprise of mercy and forgiveness, okay? 
It comes as a surprise for these women when they first came to the tomb there. It came as a surprise for the apostles when the women went and told them about it. It came as a surprise for others as the news spread, and it should come as a surprise for us still today. I think sometimes we forget this. It's easy for us to forget the surprise. It's easy for us to forget the surprise of joy. It's easy for us to forget the surprise of grace. It's easy for us to forget the surprise of the new hope and new life that we have in Jesus Christ. In short, it's easy for us to forget the surprise of Easter. I say this often, but it's because I really believe this. I think as Christians, there is a downside to some degree to hearing these stories over and over. Certainly we should. We should hear these stories. We should tell them. We should listen to them over and over again. After all, this is the climax of our faith as Christian believers. But the problem is precisely because of that. Because we hear these stories so often, we we sort of have a way of glazing over on days like this, right? I've heard all this before. We say, you can't tell me anything new, Brandon. I already know all this. And so we kind of check out. And as a result, these stories lose their power. They lose their punch. They lose their surprise. The most life-changing, world-transforming, creation-altering news in all of human history becomes ho-hum to us. It becomes ordinary. It becomes boring because we've already heard it before. My friends, it should not be. Easter is first and foremost a surprise. It's a surprise of joy, a surprise of grace, a surprise of new hope and life in Jesus Christ, and we better not forget it. We better not forget the gospel. I've talked about this before, but a few years ago I had the privilege of spending a month in Israel and Palestine. Our group was actually there to study the conflict between these, uh, the Palestinians and Israelis. Um, but while we were there, we got to tour large parts of the Holy Land and visit a number of holy sites. And one of the places that we got to visit in Jerusalem was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the, the site that's believed to house both Golgotha, which is the place where Christ was crucified on one side, and then it's a sprawling, huge, cavernous building, and on the other side, uh, it's believed to house the site of the cave tomb where Jesus was buried. And neither is what you would expect. For instance, Golgotha is little more than a glorified mound these days. That's because over the centuries, as millions of Christian pilgrims came and went, many of them chipped off a little piece of the rock there in order to take home with them as a religious relic. Now, if just one person does that, not the biggest deal. If hundreds of thousands do that over the course of two millennia, well, it's a pretty good way to reduce a small mountain to little more than a molehill. Same goes for the cave tomb on the other side of the church. Just like with Golgotha over the years, people chipped and stole away little pieces of the rock there until now there's no rock, no cave, and no anything resembling a tomb. Instead, now there's just a small shrine built in a large sanctuary where they think that Jesus would have been buried, and this is what it looks like. It's not a big shrine, it's kind of long and narrow. It's maybe four to five feet wide and about 20 to 30 feet long, and there are two rooms in it. The first room is bigger, and it's kind of a waiting room uh, that you stand in in order to get into the second room, which is smaller, and that's the spot where they think that Jesus was buried. 
That second room, the actual burial chamber, is pretty cramped. It holds only two to four people uh, at a time. And one of those people, depending on the time of day that you're there, is either a Catholic, Orthodox, or Armenian priest. The priest's job is to keep people moving. You see, a lot of people visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. A lot of pilgrims come and go each day. And because that, because of that, um, they need to keep people going through. The shrine, like I said, it's not very big. And so there can be long lines of people waiting to get in. And so as much as people might want to stop and reflect and pray in there, the priest's job is to keep them moving unless they're able to offer the sort of tithe that would buy you a little more time in there. I remember standing in that line. Uh, first, I had visited Golgotha Rock, which is right close to the entrance of the church, and then after that, I made my way over to the other side, uh, where I got in line as if I was at an amusement park waiting to get on a ride. Fortunately, the height requirement is pretty low. So, After what seemed like an eternity, I was finally able to get into that first room, waited a little bit more in there, and then it was my turn to go into the second room. I entered by myself and just stood for a moment in the awe of the place where I was in wonder at being in the same spot where my Savior was buried. After a moment or two, I decided to kneel and pray, but no sooner had my knees touched the floor than the priest to my left was hurriedly and animatedly saying something to me in a language I didn't understand. Given that I was a seminary student at the time and didn't have much money, I wasn't able to offer that kind of tithe that would have bought me more time. And so before I really knew what had happened, I was shooed out of the shrine and found myself standing back outside. And I was frustrated. All I'd wanted was a few moments of peace and quiet in the place where people believed that my Savior was buried. And then I spotted our guide, Lazarus, uh, standing just over to the side. Um, like I said, his name was Lazarus, and yes, his favorite joke was to tell people that he was indeed that Lazarus. Okay. I walked over to him in order to just kind of process what had just happened, and I said something, uh, I just started complaining to him, and I said something to the effect of, they hardly gave me any time in there. All I wanted were just a few moments to reflect on the significance of where I was, and they shooed me right out. Lazarus stood there thoughtfully for a moment, uh, as I'd grown accustomed to him doing in our time together, and then he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, as a tour guide, I bring a lot of people here, a lot of tour groups. And I stand here and I watch them as they go about this place and, and take in all that it has to offer. And then he turned towards this shrine that I'd just been in, and he said, and sometimes I wonder if all the people who come here don't sometimes forget that the entire point of this place is that he isn't here anymore. And then he walked away. And I stood there for the first time in a long time, reveling in the surprise and joy of Easter. You see, that's the surprise of the gospel. That's the surprise of Easter. That's the good news of the gospel and of Easter too. Jesus wasn't there that first Easter Sunday morning. And he's still not there today. And because of that, we have life grace, forgiveness, mercy, and everything else we believe as Christians. That was the good news of Easter back then. It was the surprise of Easter back then. And it's still the good news and surprise of Easter today.
Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have surprised us with your grace. You surprise us, first of all, because we do not deserve it. You surprise us with our grace because you have done it in the most unlikely of ways. You surprise us with your grace because you use the most unlikely people to continue to tell this gospel story, including even us. Thank you for the surprise and good news of Easter and of the gospel. Thank you for the new life that we have in our risen Savior and Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.